0: Good morning. Please take your Bibles with me and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles. Today is going to be a little bit different than usual. I'm not going to cover as many verses. You see there, it's just verses 1 through 5 today. And instead I would like to give you some perspective. Luke 2 begins the account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not actually going to dig into the account of His advent this week. Uh, This week is going to be, uh, if if I can put it this way, a bit of a history lesson. It's going to be a little bit more teachy, a little less preachy, but it's intended to give us all some perspective about the world into which Jesus Christ came. He came into a time of spiritual darkness and really a time of uh, just on the heels of geopolitical upheaval. And in that sense, the time into which Jesus entered history is, is similar to the time in which our world is currently entering. Really, we are just beginning to enter geopolitical upheaval. Jesus, in His time, was just coming out of geopolitical upheaval. You know, we live in a time of spiritual darkness. There's plenty of uh, spiritual stuff around, but most of it does not reflect the light of the truth of the Word of God, even many times in Christian circles. We're rapidly descending toward a time of geopolitical upheaval. And this instability has uh, not yet deeply touched the United States, but the day is coming. Uh, The history which I give you today is intended to give you perspective, but it's also intended to give you hope for the future. And our text opens with the historical background to Jesus' birth, and this must not be missed, nor, nor can it be overlooked, ought it be overlooked. We read in verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 2, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was previously known as Octavian, and he was technically uh, or officially the first emperor of Rome, ruling from about 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., Augustus had taken the exclusive leadership of Rome following his defeat of Mark Antony and and Cleopatra in the Battle of Actium. Augustus reigned in an era of peace that is called today the Pax Romana, where the people were generally free and the empire was generally stable. But for the true follower of God in Israel, times were really nearly at their darkest. The history leading up to this event, the uh, the event that we call the first advent of Jesus Christ, his birth, is deep and it's varied. I've taught a series on the intertestamental period on a Tuesday night in the past. I've also taught it in my uh, my mm-hmm. Monday night uh, community teachings. But I'm going to today give you kind of a brief, a short, a cliff notes version of what happened between Malachi and Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, really. And as we do so, I hope that it will give you perspective on what was going on leading up to Jesus' birth. There was approximately 450 years between the final written word of Malachi and the birth of Jesus Christ. When we leave Malachi, Israel has been reestablished as a nation following the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. During the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, the city and the temple had been rebuilt as mere shadows of the greatness of the glory that they once were. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah also they prophesied in these days. You see there on the screen behind me uh, a timeline of the events of uh, this era. Cyrus allows the Jews to return home in 539 B.C. and rebuild the temple. Rebuild the city under Medo Persian authority. That, in and of itself, is a tremendous um, prophetic answer, a, a prophecy that comes to pass. Zerubbabel leads the remnant back. The temple's finished being built in 515 BC. And we see all of these events transpiring during this time. In about 420 BC, so some hundred years after the temple is finished building. The people have been back in the land. The book of Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi is penned and Malachi is writing about judgment and about hope, hope of the Messiah and promising that before Messiah would come, Elijah would appear, thus ushering in a time of biblical renewal. But after the book of Malachi would come, before that renewal, silence. We call it the silent years, about 450 of them, in fact. During the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and through the days of Malachi's prophecy, the nation was under the hand of the Medo-Persian Empire. From 420 BC, it would be another 96 years of Medo-Persian dominance before a man named Alexander the Great would arise, and in a matter of about 10 years, he would conquer the known world. From 334 B.C. to 323 B.C., he conquers the known world and and Israel, of course, being a part of that, there's some fantastic accounts surrounding that. In accordance with prophecy, Alexander dies suddenly in 323 B.C. That prophecy is in the book of Daniel, leaving his kingdom to be divided among his four generals. Now, those four generals aren't all four worth talking about in this very brief time today, but two of these generals do matter to us. Uh, one's name was Seleucus, uh, who took control of Syria, and then the other named Ptolemy, who took control of Egypt. You see on the screen behind me uh, kind of the regions which they controlled, Seleucus being in the yellow and, and, um, and Ptolemy being in the blue. I apologize it's not in English, but you don't really need that in order to understand what's going on Uh, within uh, within the scope of this map. You'll notice that right in the middle of that yellow and that blue, there's this contested zone. And that contested zone is the nation of Israel. Now, following the divided kingdom, the dividing of the kingdom into four pieces, one can trace some 150 years or so of back and forth fighting between the nation of Syria and the nation of Egypt. And right about in the middle of their empires, right where they were fighting, of course, was Israel. So Israel becomes, if we can call them this, a national ragdoll of these two nations, uh, the land of their battlefield. Throughout these years, there's much happening in Israel. Of particular note is that the Syrian leaders were making a major effort to dissolve Jewish culture and effectively make the nation Greek. Uh, they had the support of a ruling class of priests in this, a class which would eventually be known as the Sadducees, taking their name because they said they were the lineage of the high priest Zadok, and, and, and the Zadokis, or the Sadducees, were the name that they took. They, of course, had no faithfulness, as Zadok did, to God and to his word and to his lineage. Uh, they were the theological liberals of the day, and they certainly desired to be well in favor with with those who were in control, uh, particularly with the Greeks, and were more than willing to allow Jewish culture and the Mosaic traditions to just die away. Now, throughout this time and even into the days of um, Jesus' time, the high priest was effectively the ruler of the nation. Uh, and by the time Jesus was there, uh, of course, Rome had the heavy hand, in those events, just as Syria and Egypt had before that. But uh, the high priest was kind of the effective leader of the nation. This priesthood had been, however, corrupted. It had fallen to the same vice as the pagan nations with scheming and assassinations, general wickedness. Not to say that there were not many godly high priests in that time, for indeed there were, uh, yet there was still all of the intrigue. It was not uh, pure. It was not really what what it should have been, what it needed to be. About this same time, however, a less consequential nation was rapidly rising in power, and that nation's name was Rome. Rome was strong, having just fought against Carthage in the Second Punic War, that was around 200 BC. They had a very strong military might, and they really had nowhere to assert it, and we've seen this before in empires that are built, whether it be the British Empire, or, um, and you can debate it, but I, I think it's pretty well established at this point in history, the United States Empire, as we look at these nations when they went to war and they built up a tremendous military might, and then at the end of those wars, and I'm particularly thinking of the World Wars, there was really nothing left to do with all of that military might, and the question becomes, what do we do with it? Well, uh, they defined industries, they defined lives, there's a lot of money there, it's money to maintain, it, but, but, but it brings in a lot of money as well. And Rome seemed to decide, as, as empires often do, just to keep expanding, just to keep asserting their might. And indeed, they did that. So they began to press into the affairs of Syria and Egypt around 190 BC. Their wars were over. Now it's time to exert their power in the Middle East. Now, things would continue this way. Uh, the Seleucids, the uh, Syria and Egypt fighting, Rome kind of poking around to see what they can involve themselves in until a king in Syria named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, um, a flattering title for himself. Uh, He was indeed a flatterer. He was a schemer. Overall, he was a very wicked man. He gained the Syrian throne through flattery and and he kept it through deceit. He was very successful, however, in in flattery, and he was successful in bringing Israel around to Greek culture. Uh, They had, through continued subtle flattery, uh, been brought along to this idea of Greek culture, so much so that really the, the, the common people were starting to feel as though this was the right move to reject Judaism entirely, and probably it would have only been one more generation or so, and Judaism would have been effectively dissolved. But in 168 BC, some 155 years after Alexander conquered the known world, Antiochus Epiphanes, in a rage and a hatred for the Jews and for their religion, and there's quite a story behind that, it it involves Rome, and Rome turning him away from his desire to to attack Egypt. In his anger over this situation, he goes into the temple in Israel and Jerusalem, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar. He then takes a statue of Zeus and he erects it in the Holy of Holies. In doing so, he sought to forcibly remove every last remnant of Jewish culture. He killed many of the, the priests and many who, others who offered any sort of resistance. And this had the effect that one might expect. You know, people are often very willing to give up their distinctives. We even see this in Christianity, don't we? As long as a person is willing to be patient and subtly, slowly chip away at people, People oftentimes, like the frog in the pot that boils until he dies, people don't even see what's happening until it's too late, and then the distinctives are effectively dissolved. Such was the case in Jerusalem, where they really didn't even realize all the implications of what was happening, the the destruction of Jewish heritage and culture. But then this takes place, and when this takes place, the nation turned against Antiochus and became extremely nationalistic. A family called the Maccabees arise and this family leads a rebellion against Syria. This rebellion would go on for three years and they would indeed be, be successful in this rebellion. And in 165 BC, almost to the day that the temple was desecrated, the temple was reclaimed. It was cleansed and, and sacrifices began again. These, uh, This sacrifice beginning around Um, December on our calendar in 165 B.C., and this started a commemoration which we now know today as Hanukkah. Syria had been driven out of Israel, and soon Antiochus Epiphanes would die. And this would usher in a dynasty of ruling priests called the Hasmoneans, which would rule over Israel until about 37 B.C., Of note during these years was a short two to three years period from 141 to 139 BC when Israel was about as sovereign as she had been since the fall of Babylon or since the fall of Israel to Babylon. They minted their own coins. They made their own laws. Unfortunately, however, they gained this sovereignty through a treaty with a republic of the time, called the Republic of Rome. That treaty uh, was supposed to be a two-way, you help us, we'll help you, but Israel was small and weak and didn't have a whole lot of means by which to help Rome. Rome had plenty of means by which to help Israel. This treaty would therefore become uh, very one-sided over time, Rome asserting more and more power until effectively Rome just took over. Now for the next uh, hundred years, um, from about 140. One, uh, really, we back it all the way up to the 160s BC. Syria is dwindling in power and Rome's power is growing and growing. And eventually, the Republic of Rome would be a republican name only. Military leaders manipulated the Senate into giving them absurd amounts of power. This three-man military rule that began was called a triumvirate. It began around 60 B.C. That's how nations die. If it's not by overthrowing, then it's by corruption from within. In this case, amazingly enough, it was through the law. The Senate made the laws that effectively dissolved their, their power. Nations rise and nations fall. Even in our own nation, we can see the corruption reaching epidemic levels. Make no mistake, the republic that once was the United States of America is a republic no more. The direction that we're heading in is not looking very good. History does indeed repeat itself. And Rome's history could give us a great insight into where the United States is heading. This three-man triumvirate that Rome had effectively transitioned into a military dictatorship under a man named Julius Caesar. Julius was instrumental in the collapse of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire, but, but as one might expect, uh, and I, I only mention Julius Caesar's name, because a league of three men sharing power doesn't really last for real long, does it? Eventually, one man ends up with all the power and the other two are dead. Such was the case. A man named Crassus died in 55 B.C., Pompey in 48 B.C., Julius Caesar is the man. He's the man by himself from 48 to 46 BC when, in fact, Julius Caesar himself was assassinated and a new triumvirate was formed in 43 BC made up of three men named Octavian, Marcus Lepidus, and Mark Antony. Now, this triumvirate, the other triumvirate wasn't really officially the leaders of the nation. It was illegal. This second triumvirate was legal. The Senate wrote a law called the lextitia, which effectively ended the republican form of government and gave this triumvirate the power uh, legally that they sought. Over the next 13 years, there would be a great deal of conflict among this triumvirate. Uh, Lepidus would be killed by, and, and then Antony eventually would become infatuated infatuated with an, an Egyptian leader named Cleopatra VII, Philopater. Antony eventually, uh, that being in 39 B.C., would appoint a king over the region of Judea named Herod. Herod was an Edomite, and he would be the king over the region of Judea wherein Israel was. And we see the same Herod in the days of Christ. Nine years later, after this appointing, Antony and Cleopatra take their own lives following the Battle of Actium and Octavian becomes the sole leader of Rome. He takes the name Caesar Augustus. His rule officially begins in 27 BC as the first true Caesar of the Empire of Rome. So it was that Caesar Augustus had been emperor for nearly 30 years when Jesus was born. One can only imagine the kind of national turmoil that Israel had been through in those 450 years. They'd been handed from nation to nation, government to government. The Sadducees were theological liberals and complete sellouts to first Syria and now to Rome. The Pharisees were legalistic, ritualistic, and spiritually dead. The temple had been built by an Edomite, Herod. In order to ingratiate himself to the people, it was effectively built as a bribe to keep the people in line. And now Caesar Augustus was calling for a taxation throughout the whole world. Now there's some debate among scholars about Luke's timing of these events. Uh, Luke says that the taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. According to modern scholars, this man Cyrenius was not governor of Syria at the time of Jesus' birth, that in fact he wouldn't be for about 10 years later, which at that time they do have a recorded taxing taking place. So people cry, ah! There's a historical inaccuracy here. Luke was wrong. And we've talked about this before. There's several different possible solutions to this. The first being that the word tax here uh, can actually be translated enroll. So the Greek word can mean enroll, not actually to tax, but to uh, take a census for taxing. And so it may have signified this census was what was actually happening here, not the taxation itself. Uh, but but even then, uh, people would claim that Cyrenius w- was not governor at this time, so was Luke saying that, that the taxing was, eventual, was ten years later when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, or was Cyrenius governor of Syria? Well, there's, again, debate about that, but it would seem from the text and it would seem from some other corroborating evidence that yes, indeed Cyrenius was governor of Syria in this time. But either way, The conflict is really unnecessary. There are ways to understand this that make sense even with our current understanding of history, but above that and above all, we can rest without a doubt that where known history conflicts with the biblical record, the biblical record is accurate 100 percent of the time. And we know this because God inspired His Word and God preserved His Word so that we can rest in the confidence That where man's fallible human research, man's fallible human understanding, man's fallible fallible study conflicts with God's infallible word, the problem is not the Bible. It's with our knowledge or our understanding. Now, why does any of this matter? Well, we continue in our text. In verse 3 we read, and reading through verse 5, "...and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city." And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into a city of David, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. A couple of weeks ago, we spent time considering the theological significance of many of the elements of the announcement of Jesus' birth. We were introduced to Joseph and Mary, a man and a woman living in Nazareth, which would fulfill prophecy, saying that Messiah would be a Nazarene. They were of the tribe of Judah. They were of the house of David, fulfilling the prophecies that Messiah would come from the line of David. And as those who were of the house of David, in order to fulfill the requirement of this census, this taxation, they were required to report to the city of their lineage. Coming from the house of David, the city of their lineage was that of Bethlehem. We can trace both the lineage and posterity of Bethlehem all the way back to Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan. Perhaps you remember the harlot Rahab. She was the one who helped the spies when they entered the land of Canaan and went into Jericho. That She helped them get out of Jericho. She helped them get out through a window and then in return they said that she would not be destroyed with the rest of the city if she hung a red cord out her window. So she did so in faith. And when the walls fell, Rahab and her family were spared. Well, Rahab proselytizes into the nation of Israel, and she marries a man named Solomon. He is a Judite, and they settle in the land in a town called Bethlehem. Solomon and Rahab give birth to a son named Boaz. Boaz marries a Midianitish woman named Ruth, which you can read about in the book of Ruth, and they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, Jesse has eight sons, and the youngest of those sons is David, who would be king in Israel. And so the house of David can be traced back to Bethlehem from the very entrance of the family into the land of Canaan. Isn't that neat? Did you know that Rahab was in the lineage of David and of Jesus? Had you ever thought before that Rahab was actually Boaz's mother? Pretty fascinating but the significance of Bethlehem was far more than just that. The prophet Micah prophesied during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And as he did so, in Micah 5, 2, he prophesied this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Micah prophesied that it would be out of the city of Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah being the older name of the city, out of Bethlehem would come forth the one who would rule in Israel. Obviously Micah was prophesying after the death of David, so David cannot be the one in scope here. But God had made the promises unto David that foretold of Messiah, who would come from his line. Now there's no doubt that this ruler would be the same as Messiah who Israel had longed for. And he would, without question, be God himself, one who had come from old and from everlasting. So it is that Mary, being what the text calls great with child, well along the pregnancy trail, and likely do any day, would make the journey to Bethlehem from Nazareth, likely a journey of some 80 to 100 miles. And in this journey, compelled by a pagan emperor, in the exact season of Mary's pregnancy, we will find the fulfillment of yet another prophecy in the person of Jesus Christ, who was a Nazarene and yet was born in Bethlehem some 100 miles away. Now, I know that today has been a little bit more of a history lesson than a sermon, but but it's a history lesson with a point. History lesson with two points, in fact. And our first point is to consider very, very quickly the dark times in which Jesus was born in order that we can understand that the light of Jesus Christ truly did shine into very dark times. When we read the New Testament, we, we are tempted to get the feeling that things were pretty good in Israel. The Sanhedrin had um, a bit of, quite a bit of authority. The Pharisees were, were the dominant party. Religious purists, they seem in, intent on preserving the Mosaic law and its traditions. The temple was big and beautiful and central to Jewish life. But when we peel back the curtain and we look underneath, we find something very different, don't we? We find the end of a long line of foreign occupation. We find hypocrisy and corruption in the very highest levels of the religious system and government. We find a Roman-appointed leader who was an Edomite, an Idumean, who had no interest in the Jews except to subjugate them we find the nation of Israel failing to represent anything even like the relationship which their fathers had with the true and living God. It was indeed a time of true spiritual hopelessness and of true spiritual darkness. But just last week as we studied the declaration of Zechariah, he praised the Lord and announced that the day spring, the divine sunrise from on high had visited them called in Malachi 4, verse 2, the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. And this is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus continues to do today. He shines light into the darkness so that Jesus would tell the Pharisees in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He was a beacon of hope in the darkest of times for the Jews. And today, Jesus lives as a beacon of hope in the darkest of times for the human heart. He promises that all those who follow Him will not walk in darkness, but have the very light of life. The light to step day by day, moment by moment, walking in the will of the Lord. The light to understand the spiritual battle that rages around us and to find in it spiritual victory. And while it cannot really be said that the light which is Jesus Christ gets brighter for it always shines bright it can be said that the darker the heart the darker the times in which we live the easier it is for the brightness of his light to come to light and thus for to have others come to his light there is no darkness of a human heart that is too dark for the sun of righteousness there is no darkness of society and culture that can overcome the brightness of his glory There is no sin that is left unconquered. There is no power that is left unchecked. Jesus entered into the world in some very dark days. But the darkness of the night could not impose itself upon the light of the world. And I say this so that you might take hope. There are perhaps those here today who rest in darkness. Perhaps it's the darkness of having never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you have never seen the light of life shine into your, your heart. You have never accepted that light. You have never received it. What you need to know is that there is a darkness inside of you called sin. That sin found in Adam realized in you through your personal choices. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That this darkness is in all of us, separating us from the light of Christ. And the Bible tells us that the wages of this sin is death, that because of this darkness we deserve to die. But, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, here's what God did. He saw that you were in darkness, that I was in darkness. You can't find your way out of that darkness on your own. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of things that can get you out of that darkness. But the scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said that those who follow Him shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus came to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He came to undo the darkness that was in you. Now, you can try to live like the light, but but there's no light there. You can't conjure light. A person without a match, without a a spark, can't make fire. You have no spark within you with which to make the light. But the Scriptures tell us that if we will accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if if we will accept what He did on the cross... That He paid the penalty for your sin. That He will shine His light into your heart. And that you will be illuminated with His light, the light of life. And so maybe you're resting in the darkness because you have never accepted the light. But perhaps you as a believer, perhaps you're resting under darkness today. A believer cannot lose his salvation. You have the light within you and yet perhaps that light is hid under a bushel as Jesus would say. Perhaps that light is dimmed by your sin and you're living under the guilt and under the condemnation of your sinful choices. You know that God has saved you through Christ yet you wallow in the darkness of your sinful choices. You don't realize that the light of Jesus Christ is bigger than the darkness of your sin. You don't understand or you have forgotten that the moment you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior by grace through faith, the shutters of your heart were unlocked so that the gospel light could come in and this light does not just redeem you from a sinner's hell. It redeems you from a sinner's guilt. You need to remember that there is no darkness which is greater than the light which is yours in Christ. And you can live in this light Paul tells us in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. No condemnation. And you need to know this. You need to believe this. And you need to live in light of this. Because this is the reality of your life in Christ. Second point today, And a little bit more to the point. Not only is the light of Jesus did it shine into some very dark times. But secondly, we need to remember that no government has ever, ever thwarted, resisted, or otherwise confounded the counsel of God. Follow this with me. Caesar Augustus some 30 years into his reign as emperor, decides to magnify his own name by taxing the known world for his glory. This pagan king knew nothing of God, cared nothing for God. What he sees is the advancement of his own name. What he wants is the glory of his reign. And yet, his order accomplishes a great prophetic promise. His aggrandizement worked according to a greater power, according to a higher authority to move in the heart of a man and a woman, a poor man and a poor woman, to travel 100 miles with a pregnant wife in order to fulfill a 700 year old promise that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. What else could have gotten Joseph and Mary living in Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Messiah could be born? the will of the great Caesar Augustus had become subservient to a prophet of old, a prophecy of which he is entirely ignorant by the sovereign decree of an almighty God. And this is a thought of incredible wonder, is it not? And even more so of comfort. There is no nation, there is no government, there is no ruler who has ever been able to thwart or otherwise frustrate the counsel of God. Today we watch in horror as we consider the awful prospects facing our nation's future leadership. Our government is hopelessly corrupt with little to no end in sight. Our liberties as believers hang by a thread. And the day of open persecution of the Christian faith is almost upon us. Two weeks ago at a male privilege conference, it was asserted that every dangerous and evil thought and philosophy in the world today is sourced in Christianity. And the people clapped. And today we call these things fringe. It's newsworthy. But in a matter of just a few years, this thinking might very well be law. And if it is, but if it is, we hope in this. God is not surprised. And God wins. And if God wins, that means we win. In closing today, I would like for us to read a passage of Scripture. It's going to be a bit long, and I'm going to effectively allow it to speak for itself. It's found in Isaiah 40, and it reminds us that God is in control, that God is more than willing to use a pagan emperor seeking his own glory to bring about a taxation. That would call a young couple right at the time of this espoused woman's late delivery time to travel a hundred miles to the city of their lineage in order to give birth to the Messiah to validate the prophecy of where he would be born. In Isaiah 40 beginning verse 12 we we read this. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord or who being His counselor hath taught Him? With whom took He counsel and who instructed Him and taught Him in the path of judgment and taught Him knowledge and showed to Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth the graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a grave and image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye, will ye liken me, or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. God is not intimidated by grand armies and powerful men. God is not concerned with their schemes and their evil plans and their lies. God's will is not dependent upon which party gets into office. God's purposes do not rest on the shifting sands of geopolitics. The nations are of nothing to Him. The inhabitants of this world as grasshoppers. Does He care about them? Yes. Do they have power over Him? No. All those who oppose God blow away with the dust of the earth. All those who humble themselves before God will be established forever. This is God's plan from day one till now, till the end of eternity. And this is His promise. Two thousand years ago, a great world emperor decided to tax that world. This taxation was a burdensome attempt to assert His power and His majesty. But what this taxation really was Was God weaving the course of history together to fulfill His will? God did it then, and He is doing it now. And that means we need not fear the events of the day or the events of tomorrow. We need to labor, but not fret. We need to do our part, but not fear to fear over government, society, and culture as it spirals out of control is to waste our time because there's one greater than all of these who is over all of these. Now this is not a call to apathy. It's not a call just to sit and be still and to not care, to take no responsibility for indeed we have a responsibility of shining the light of the gospel into this dark world. Be concerned. Trust. Be concerned, but don't fret. Care, but don't be full of cares. Seek to be a part of the solution, but never fear those who are the problem. Because he who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heavens with a span, who comprehends the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains in scales, weighs the hills in the balance, he is in control, and you are on his side. Let's pray.